Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the History of Russia. As usual, I'm Damon, and this is episode 11, The Accursed and the Wise. Thanks for listening in. Last week, we took a break from the main story and did the first State of the Nation episode, which looked at what kind of place Kievan Rus was in the year 1015, how it had developed, and we compared it to what was going on with the lands in the west that the Vikings had invaded and settled. Today we're right back into the chronological narrative and we'll be looking at the key people that were around and the events that transpired after the death of Vladimir the Great. We'll be covering a time span of around 40 years, which whilst initially volatile, was the beginning of what is called today the Golden Age of Kievan Rus, or to be precise, the Rusiskaya Zemla, or the Rus lands. Now before we get going, some of the names we'll encounter are very similar to those that we've recently met. And so to stop you mixing up your Sviatoslavs with your Sviatopolks or your Yarapolks with your Yaroslavs, I'll put an updated timeline of all the Rus rulers we've covered so far up on the website, which is historyofrussia.podbean.com, which I hope will help. Okay, let's make a start. So it's 10.15 and Vladimir has died in his bed after a short unknown illness. But we don't need to worry because in terms of dynastic legacy, the Rus are in fine shape as the great man has left a dozen sons to continue the Rurikid dynasty. However, as I hinted at last week, a dozen is just a few too many and as we'll see, some of them are just not going to be happy with the new status quo, regime-wise. And in fact, we've already seen some unrest because, if you remember, during the latter stages of Vladimir's reign, two of his sons, Sviatopolk and Yaroslav, had already chanced their arms and had stood up to the old man. In late 1014, Yaroslav, who was based up in Novgorod, 
decided to stop sending the local taxes or tributes down to Kiev. Now we don't know the full reason for this, but the primary chronicle suggests that it could have been due to the fact that Vladimir had proclaimed one of his other sons, Boris, as his heir. Anyhow, before Vladimir could do anything about this situation, he became ill and died. And a couple of years prior to this, Sviatopolk, who was by now married to a Polish princess and was sub-prince of the Turov region in today's southern Belarusia, decided to rebel against his father. Again, we don't know the precise reason. All we're told is that he became dissatisfied with Vladimir's rule and encouraged by his wife, he began preparations for war against Vladimir, assisted by his father-in-law and, as a warning now, Polish pronunciation coming up, Duke Bolesław, the first Trobry of Poland. There, almost got through it. However, before anything tangible could happen, Vladimir discovered Sviatopolk's intentions and had him and his wife thrown in prison. But there must have been a change of heart or some kind of rapprochement, because we're told that shortly before Vladimir's death, Sviatopolk was freed from prison and sent to govern the town of Vishgorod, several miles from Kiev. Then in 1015, someone in Sviatopolk's retinue got wind of the fact that Vladimir had died, and after discussing it with the rest of the Druzhina, everyone agreed to keep things under wraps, although why they did so is neither explained or something that has a good feel to it. Anyhow, it didn't matter in the end because Sviatopolk somehow got wind of what was going on and hot-footed it down to Kiev where he seized the reins of power. But who did he seize power from? Well, again, frustratingly, we're not told. It could have been Boris, if indeed he had been named as Vladimir's heir. Or, quite simply, Sviatopolk was just the first of the bunch to get to the right place and claim the spoils. So what do we know about him? Not a great deal, to be honest. Born in around 980, he was one of the oldest of Vladimir's sons, perhaps the oldest. His mother was the Greek nun who had been in a previous relationship with Vladimir's older brother Yarapolk, and according to some historians, Yarapolk could have been Sviatopolk's father. But whoever his father was, he was brought up as Vladimir's son, and at the age of eight was given the sub-princedom of Turov to nominally look after. And then apart from his short-lived and unsuccessful rebellion, we draw a bit of a blank, I'm afraid, but there are a couple of clues that point to him being a slightly unsavoury character. The first relates to his retinue not wanting him to know about his father's death. And remember, these would have been his closest companions. And if they're not behind you, then there must be a reason. Well, unless, of course, the whole thing was made up. And then apparently, having seized power, the sources tell us that the citizens of Kiev weren't too happy with the takeover. So much so that Sviatopolk had to distribute cash and gifts in an attempt to win them over. And we don't know whether or not this worked, but to be honest, his next move makes it rather a moot point, because we're then told that he has three of his brothers, Boris, Gleb, and, sorry about the confusion, Sviatoslav, put to death. Now there's no description of how Gleb and Sviatoslav met their ends but the Chronicle spins us a fine story about Boris's murder. 
and apparently Sviatopolk sent some of his henchmen to execute his brother and they discovered Boris and a manservant sleeping in a tent. It seems a bit odd, but there you go. And they were both stabbed to death. However, as has been the case with henchmen throughout the centuries, they bopped the job, because when the bodies were being transported back to Kiev in sacks, one of them was seen to be moving, and when the sack was opened, Boris was discovered to be still alive, just about. And so someone grabbed the lance and put him out of his misery. So my take on this is that if Boris had been named as heir, he had either been caught by surprise or just wasn't that good at the whole being in charge thing. It's probably the latter, because we're told that Boris and his brother Gleb were both pious, meek characters who just weren't made for the cut and thrust of 11th century Rus' leadership. And this is supported by the fact that both were canonised in 1071 and are now known to us as Saint Boris and Saint Gleb. Unlike their poor old brother Sviatoslav, who no one seems to have given a second thought, and on the other side of the coin, Sviatopolk gets known forevermore as the Accursed. So, three brothers down, potentially eight to go. But news travels fast, even in the early medieval period. And in days, the story of the murders has reached Yaroslav up in Novgorod. Now he seems to be made of sterner stuff. And he knows that if he doesn't act immediately, then he's going to probably suffer the same fate. And so he quickly raises an army and heads south down to Kiev. And he was right to do so, because at the same time, Sviatopolk is heading north with his army. And in 1016, not far from the town of Lubiek, the armies met. And the result was a win for Yaroslav, with Sviatopolk fleeing across the border to Poland. But two years later, he's back again with his father-in-law, Boleslav, and they defeat Yaroslav and take back Kiev. And this time it's Yaroslav's turn to flee, and he returns to Novgorod to lick his wounds. Well, not literally, obviously. Now the citizens of Novgorod, they don't want their leader lying around feeling sorry for himself and waiting for the inevitable arrival of Sviatopolk, and so they persuade him to raise another army to finish the job. And luck is on the Novgorodian side, because Boleslav has had enough of mooching around in the Rus lands and has decided to go back to Poland with his army. And hearing of this, Yaroslav and his army swoop down on Kiev and defeat Sviatopolk again, but this time they manage to cut off retreat to the west, and so the Kievan army is forced to flee eastwards to the steppes and the Pechenegs. And just a thought here, the Rus really need to deal with the Pechenegs at some point. Anyway, Sviatopolk manages to persuade the Pechenegs to supply him with a force of troops, and soon he's back on the march towards Kiev. And don't worry, this constant backwards and forwards is nearly at an end. And somewhere near to the Alta River, to the east of Kiev, a final battle takes place. Sviatopolk is defeated, again, and makes a last attempt to escape to Poland. But somewhere on the way, he dies. Possibly murdered, or perhaps like us, just worn out with it all. So everything has ended as it should. Yaroslav, the good brother, has finally got rid of Sviatopolk, the nasty brother, and we can get on with exploring the so-called Golden Age. Well, perhaps not. Perhaps it wasn't quite like that, because there is a different version of events, 
that has come down to us from two alternative sources. First of all, we have a Norse source called Eymann's Saga, and then we have a chronicle of a certain Thietmar of Merseburg, who was around in Poland at the time that the whole Sviatopolk Yaroslav thing was playing out. Now they both suggest that it was Boris who succeeded his father, and it was Yaroslav who got rid of him, and that Sviatopolk, who had still been in prison during the time that these events occurred, then spent the next four years trying to bring Yaroslav to justice. Now all of that sounds plausible, but then you've got to consider that Thietmar could have got his version of events from Sviatopolk himself when he was in exile at his father-in-law's place in Poland. And both sources seem to be confused with and interchangeably use the names Boris and Boleslav. My frustrating take on this, again, is we don't know. And it could have been either story that was true. But if you force me to make a choice, I'd reluctantly go with the primary chronicle. However, I'm saying that through gritted teeth, although on second thoughts and gritted teeth aside, where would we be without the primary chronicle? So there, now you know exactly where I stand. Anyhow, whichever way you look at it, we've ended up with Sviatopolk dead and Yaroslav as the main man. So let's delve into who he is and what he gets up to. And as we've come to expect, knowledge of his early years is a bit of a mystery. We're not even sure who his mother is, or even when he was born. The accepted facts are that he came into the world in 978, and that his mother was Rogneda of Polotsk, who, if you remember, was stolen from Yaropolk by Vladimir. But, and here we go again, there is strong evidence to suggest that he was one of Vladimir's younger sons, and that he was either illegitimate, or that his mother was Anna Porphyrogenita, the daughter of the Byzantine Empire, Emperor Basil II. And some historians feel that the case for Anna being his mother is backed up by the fact that Yaroslav took a keen interest in Byzantine affairs later on in his reign. But to be honest, and as we'll see, this really is a bit tenuous. One of the first actions that Yaroslav took as Grand Prince was to give various freedoms and privileges to the citizens of Novgorod for all of the aid and support that they had provided between 1015 and 1019. And this was to have two key impacts. One, the unquestioned support of Novgorod for the rest of his reign. And two, the foundation of a quasi-type of democracy within the city that will go on to effectively establish it as almost an independent territory within the Rus' lands, as different to Kiev as Athens was to Sparta. Well, maybe not that different, but you get the picture. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. 
Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. And then with no hint of internal or external issues on the horizon, Yaroslav had some time on his hands, and he sets out about devising the first codified set of laws in the lands of the Eastern Slavs. Called the Pravda, or Truth, of Vladimir, which in the next century developed into the more formalised Ruskaya Pravda, the law code stabilised the system and hierarchy of feudal relations. For example, it made new groups for the peasants, dividing them into three main groupings. So you have the Smieds, who are feudal dependent peasants. Then you have a group called the Zakups, who are, again, feudal dependent peasants, but they could become essentially free or unbonded after paying off loans. And then finally you had Holops, who were feudal dependent peasants, who could be killed or sold off just like a slave. The Pravda also set out various punishments and penalties for a whole range of crimes, attempted to resolve blood feuds, regulated debt between individuals, and contained articles of liability and hereditary law. The legal process also included sections on testimony, witnesses, evidence collecting, and the checking of false accusations. So, Everyone knows, or should know, where they stand. But one person who doesn't is Yaroslav himself. Or more specifically, he does, but it's not quite where he wants to be standing because, quite simply, he's not the only man in charge. Some of his other brothers have proved to be less than impressed with Yaroslav being the big kahuna with his fancy law codes and democratic friends up in Novgorod. And there are a couple of insurrections that he has to deal with. One of them's fairly easy, results in his younger brother Sudislav being imprisoned for life. For what? We don't know. But the other situation is much more serious, because the brother with the difficult name, for me anyway, Mustislav, has in 1024 raised an army and is marching on Kiev. So Yaroslav gets his men together, and with reinforcements provided by his brother-in-law, King Anun Jakob of Sweden, he confidently rides out to teach his upstart younger brother a lesson he won't forget. Except it doesn't work out that way. It's Mustislav who does the teaching. He inflicts a heavy defeat on Yaroslav, and subsequently an agreement is reached for both of them to share the leadership of the Bruce lands, Mustislav taking the east, Yaroslav taking the west, which handily includes both Kiev and Novgorod. And this division is in place right up to Mustislav's death in 1036. And so, just like many of today's politicians who are under pressure on the home front and with only half a domain to rule, Yaroslav turned his attention to foreign affairs. And initially, he turned his gaze, gaze towards the West, in a move that some historians see as lessening the Byzantine influence on Kiev. So in 1030, he took a handful of towns from the Poles, started building a fort at a place called Sutjesk to guard the newly acquired lands. And then when that was finished, he concluded an alliance with the Polish king, Casimir I, which was sealed by the latter's marriage to Yaroslav's sister, Maria. 
In 1031, he captured Tartu in Estonia and renamed it Yuriev after Yuri, his patron saint, and then forced the surrounding region to pay an annual tribute, and also found time to strike up an another alliance, this time with the Swedes. And Swedish troops played a part in two campaigns aimed at Byzantium, the first in the mid-1030s and then the second in 1043. In the latter campaign, which in all reality was just another glorified raid, a Rus flotilla headed by one of Yaroslav's sons appeared near Constantinople and demanded money, threatening to attack the city if they didn't get it. But for whatever reason, the Greeks refused to pay and preferred to fight. And so the Rus flotilla defeated the Byzantine fleet, but was then almost destroyed by a storm and came back to Kiev empty-handed. So it's the old story of a raid and then all of the ships being destroyed by a storm. And in between those two raids in 1036, Yaroslav finally took note of my advice and decided it was time to do something about the Pechenegs. But rather than take the offensive option, he instead constructed a line of five forts, Yuriev, Boislav, Kaniv, Korsun, and Periaslavl to defend the Rus lands. And this was so effective that the primary chronicle proudly stated that never again were the Pechenegs a serious threat to Kiev. And that's right, they weren't. Yaroslav also found time to become a notable patron of literary culture and learning. And in 1051, he had a Slavic monk, Hilarion of Kiev, proclaimed the Metropolitan Bishop of Kiev thus challenging the Byzantine tradition of placing Greeks in the various episcopal sees. Hilarion's discourse on Yaroslav and his father Vladimir is frequently cited as the first work of Old East Slavic literature. And on the family side, Yaroslav had married Ingegerd Olofsdottir, the daughter of the King of Sweden, back in 1019. And over the years, they had had six sons and four daughters, all of whom were married to foreign princes, well, the daughters, that is, further cementing the relationship between the Rus and other European powers. So first off, we had daughter number one, Elisiv. She was married to Harold Hardrada. Yes, that Harold Hardrada, who went on to invade England in 1066. Then we have Anastasia. She was married to the future Andrew I of Hungary, Anne was married to Henry I of France and Agatha to Edward the Exile. Uh, he was of the Saxon royal family that Canute had displaced. The eldest of the sons, Vladimir, best remembered for building the Cathedral of St. Sophia in Novgorod, predeceased his father. And then three other sons, Isaiaslav, Sviatoslav II and Vsevolod, reigned in Kiev, sort of one after another, and we'll explore all of that next time. And then we have two younger sons, Igor and Vyacheslav. And apparently, and unlike when Vladimir died, a line of succession was documented, and Yaroslav exhorted his sons to follow the rules and avoid any internecine squabbling. We move forward to 1054, and in that year, two key events took place. The first was the culmination of years of infighting between the Catholic Church in Rome, 
and the Eastern Church in Constantinople, which revolved around which was the preeminent body. On the 16th of July, during a celebration of the Divine Litur Liturgy at the Hagia Sophia in Constantinople, the Catholic legates, led by Humbert of Silva Candida, which you have to admit is an outstanding name. In fact, it's so outstanding, I'm going to say it again. Humbert of Silva Candida laid a papal bull on the high altar, formally excommunicating the Patriarch of Constantinople, Michael Kerularios. Four days later, Michael returned the favour and excommunicated the papal legates, and so began a split of the church along doctrinal, theological, linguistic, political and geographical lines, which is still in place today, and has had a massive impact in terms of different religious cultures and the relationship between the West and Russia, Ukraine and Belarusia. The second, you could say less defining event, had taken place back in February, and that was the death of Yaroslav Wise. Now, you would have thought that there'd have been copious details around how he died and what the causes were, but no, he's dead. And that is that. Things do get more interesting, though, because following his death, the body of Yaroslav was entombed in a white marble sarcophagus within St. Sophia Cathedral in Kiev. Yes, there were two St. Sophias, one in Novgorod and one in Kiev. Now, fast forward to 1936, and the sarcophagus was opened and found to contain the skeletal remains of two individuals, one male and one female. The male was determined to be Yaroslav, mainly from the evidence of an arrow wound to his leg that had been mentioned in one of the historical Norse sagas, which referred to Yaroslav as Yaroslav the Lame. And, however, the identity of the female was never established. Now, strangely, the sarcophagus was opened again in 1939 and the remains were removed for further, and I'm doing air quotes now, research and weren't documented as being returned to the sarcophagus in 1964. Then in 2009, yeah, you've guessed it, the sarcophagus was opened again, don't ask, and surprisingly found to contain only one skeleton, that of the female. Now, it seems that the documents detailing the 1964 reinterment of the remains had been falsified to hide the fact that Yaroslav's remains had been lost. So subsequent questioning of the individuals involved in the research reinterment of the remains seems to point to the fact that Yaroslav's remains were purposely hidden prior to the German occupation of Ukraine and then either lost completely or stolen or, and this is just fantastic, transported to the United States. So Yaroslav's ghost could be living in someone's attic or basement, and my guess that he's somewhere, probably in the Midwest, Nebraska or Wyoming, listening to this podcast and chuckling away to himself. But anyway, to wrap all of this up, I'd like to pose and answer the following questions. So... Okay, first question. Did Sviatopolk deserve the title, The Accursed? Well, I suppose the easy answer is that if he did murder the saintly Boris and Gleb, then yes. If he didn't, no. But even if he did, what difference is there between Sviatopolk murdering his brothers on the one hand, and on the other, 
Vladimir murdering one of his back in the day? And the simple answer to that is that the primary chronicle backs the winners of dynastic struggles and not the losers. Okay, that brings us on to the second question. Did Yaroslav deserve the title, The Wise? Yeah, I think he did. He fits most of the criteria. The primary chronicle likes him. He doesn't kill any of his brothers. He extends the Ruslands westward, sorts out the Pechenik problem, finds good marriages for his daughters, and actually documents a succession. So, yeah, I'm happy with Yaroslav the Wise. And then the final question. Did the period we've just covered represent the beginnings of a golden age? Well, like the Chinese premier Chu Enlai's apocryphal response to a reporter's question in the 1970s, what were the impacts of the French Revolution? It's too soon to tell. But seriously, most golden ages are named that by people living through shitty times a bit further down the road. And so we need to keep that in mind. Okay, we'll leave it there for this week. Join me next time when we'll look at the Yaroslavici Triumvirate, or the rules of Yaroslav's three older sons, and see how they each contributed to this Kievan Golden Age. Just before I go, and if you want to get in touch with a comment or question, then you can in a number of different ways via the website, via Twitter at HistoryRussia1, and then there's good old email, nordicworld at outlook.com. Or simply follow me or subscribe on whichever platform you listen in on. Until then, stay safe, look after yourself, and I'll see you all soon.